press the follow or subscribe button in your podcast app to get daily updates from the front. From the journalists of The Australian, here's what's on the front. I'm Kristen Amiot. It's Thursday, October 13. Australia will offer Pacific Island countries unprecedented defence support in an effort to prevent them turning towards China for help. Defence Minister Richard Miles meets leaders in Papua New Guinea this week and the Pacific Islands Forum next week. He'll offer their defence forces the chance to train at Australia's Jungle Warfare School, embed with our army regiments and even request military hardware for Australia to supply. A culture of misogyny and mistrust is rife at Queensland's state-run forensics lab. That's according to scientists at the coalface of DNA testing. They say they were ignored and even targeted for raising concerns about the lab's controversial testing thresholds and felt pressured to provide incorrect information to police investigating serious crimes. We'll have more on that later in the episode. To use the parlance of Senator Lambie, it's got chops bigger than jaws. (laughs) She's much more colourful than me. That's the promise from Attorney General Mark Dreyfus. He's added flesh to the bones of the National Anti-Corruption Commission, addressing its broad remit and sweeping powers in his most extensive comments since the legislation was introduced. That's first up. Attorney General Mark Dreyfus started the public cell on Labor's proposed National Anti-Corruption Commission at the National Press Club yesterday. And we should have had an anti-corruption commission long before now. At this year's election, Australians put their faith and trust in Labor. I've been working every day since then to deliver the anti-corruption commission that Australians so clearly want and deserve. Rosie Lewis is a political correspondent with The Australian and she joins me now. Rosie, you were at the press club yesterday. It was the first time Mark Dreyfus has spoken at length about the NAC since the legislation was introduced. We heard this week that warrants to intercept telephones can be approved by junior judicial officers on behalf of the NAC. What else did we learn about that decision at the press club? Yeah, so we had a a story in Wednesday's paper looking at the fact that an eligible judge or a member of the Administrative Appeals Tribunal actually sign off on warrants requested by the commissioner. Now, the AAT is stacked with political appointments. These are former politicians. These are former staffers. These are people linked to the government of the day. And all governments, it has been found through various investigations, have appointed people linked to their political party. So that is a concern for members of the coalition. Having said that, at the moment, you would have many people linked to the coalition on the AAT. But it's a question of who should be the people with this power to approve a warrant. The Attorney General did play down the role to an extent that these people would play, pointing out that actually it's the commissioner who requests the warrant, who decides they want a warrant, and that really the uh, judge or AAT member would really just review the warrant as being legal. But he did concede that the politicisation of the AAT was extraordinary and had damaged its reputation and that in some circumstances, i.e. if it was a warrant relating to a journalist, he did believe they should have quite high level of qualification. So this is an issue that I think will play out during the parliamentary committee process. There is a committee about to start scrutinising the legislation for the next month. 
And speaking of journalists, Dreyfus said the legislation will include increased protections for journalists and media organisations that mean they won't need to reveal the identities of their sources. Why is that important for someone like you in covering politics and potentially corruption for The Australian? It's important because you don't want any integrity body, as this is often referred to, to scare anyone, particularly whistleblowers who might have a very important story from coming forward and sharing their story with a journalist. So there are a lot of assurances from the Attorney General that journalists and their sources will be looked after. Having said that, a colleague of mine, James Madden, has written a story recently showing that the NAC will, in fact, be able to tap journalists' phones and conduct raids on newsrooms if a so-called issuing officer rules that it's in the public interest for that surveillance to occur and the public interest outweighs the freedom of the press. So that is a loophole that the coalition has raised concerns about and something I think we might also see play out and scrutinised in more detail through the committee process. And speaking lastly of the public interest, Dreyfus also defended the decision to hold certain hearings in private. What did he say about that? Yeah, this threshold that the government wants to set of only holding public hearings in exceptional circumstances and where it's in the public interest really appears to be the number one sticking point for most crossbenchers, for the Greens. The coalition is on board and and endorses the threshold that's been set. But Mark Dreyfus really defended that test at the press club. Mark Dreyfus pointed out that the experience of the state and territory commissions has been that not many hearings are conducted in public. And while he acknowledged it was the desire of many for hearings to be in public, he said it simply can't be the case. Let me be clear. The National Anti-Corruption Commission is not a court. It is an investigative body. Its primary work is rooting out and exposing corruption. The public can be assured that if there is a finding of corruption, they will know about it. It'll be fascinating to watch whether he is forced to move and make the test weaker because of the concerns of the crossbench. Rosie Lewis is a political correspondent with The Australian. Coming up, culture is under the microscope at Queensland's troubled DNA lab. Hey, I'm Felicity Harley and I host Healthy-ish, where we chat to experts, influencers and people in the know from around the globe to arm you with the knowledge to make healthier decisions for your mind, body and soul. I think if we're going to be focusing on health, like sleep is probably the biggest component of that. I I think sleep is the cornerstone. Like choose the harder option because I've never woken up and gone, I regret that run that I went at 4am. I've never done that. Search for Healthy-ish and Extra Healthy-ish wherever you get your podcasts. The scientists at the coalface of Queensland's troubled forensics lab have painted a picture of a toxic culture founded on mistrust and control. 
Claire Harvey is the Australian's editorial director and the regular host of The Front. She joins me now. Is it, in your opinion, possible to divorce that apparently toxic culture from poor scientific processes that had been implemented and backed by the lab's management, or are they just two separate parts of one bigger problem? So this is this really fascinating thing that the inquiry is getting into now. I never would have thought going into this inquiry that we'd be talking about post-it notes and people's working hours. But the inquiry is looking at allegations by a whole bunch of scientists that at almost every point during their day, a real command and control kind of structure where they had to, according to one scientist, get someone with a key to come and open the stationery cupboard for them, or that if they wanted to start work early so that they could pick up their kids in the afternoon, that they would again have to jump through a whole lot of bureaucratic hoops and potentially get rejected for requests like that. And so what they're saying is that This apparently trivial stuff was actually creating a culture where when they did have big scientific concerns, like, for example, that the lab was telling police that there was no DNA in a sample from a pool of blood, that they couldn't actually raise that because the managers were the very same people who were blocking access to the post-it notes or denying them permission to start work at seven o'clock in the morning. Many of the reporting scientists and line managers that we've heard from in the inquiry so far have long tenures with the lab, many of them more than 15 years. And they've all been asked in one way or another, if things deteriorated as much as they say from both a culture and a process perspective, why they've stayed there, what have they said about that? A lot of them are lifers. They've come out of university, maybe done some other qualification, and then they've gone straight to work at the lab. And if you're a a forensic scientist who wants to live in Brisbane, this is kind of where you've got to work. You could move to another state, you could potentially move to another part of Queensland, but you'd have to go a long way to get the kind of job that these people want. And they're also crime fighters. And it's not that long ago that if you were a scientist working in this lab, you would be working hand in glove with the cops. That way of working was the way they did it at this lab until a few years back, and it's the way it's still done now at labs in, for example, the United Kingdom. On Wednesday, we heard from a scientist, Emma Quant, who was an English forensic scientist, and she described the satisfaction she got from working with detectives to help them solve or to disprove the allegations that were in front of them. Now in this lab, they've sent a sample or a test tube or some powder or some blood and they're not even allowed to ask what is this for and what do we think might have happened here to this victim. So I think that's, according to them, a really key part of the problem. They're not actually allowed to be crime fighters. They're just supposed to be lab rats. And ultimately, who loses when these types of practices are allowed to go unchecked as it has in the Queensland lab? Well, according to one of the witnesses on Wednesday, it's women who lose. So Rhys Parry, who's one of the male scientists at the lab, said that he felt that the culture was quite misogynistic. Here's what Rhys Parry said about that. His words are being read by a voice actor. I feel that despite the gender balance of the management team, the laboratory culture was quite misogynistic. And when he was grilled on that statement by the counsel for one of the lab's female managers... Rhys Parry said that frequently female scientists at the lab were denied requests for flexible work. And it came not long after Alicia Quartermain, one of the scientists, said really explicitly in her evidence her requests for flexible work were denied repeatedly and that she felt that that was punishment for her raising concerns with her lab bosses about the quality of the science that they were doing. 
Here's what Alicia Quartermain said about that. This is her real voice from the inquiry. I want my children to see that um, I go to work and I I do a good job and I, I love what I do and I talk to them about that. I want to be able to balance being at home and seeing them while they're little um, with being able to come to work and enjoy my job and spend time with my work colleagues and do the tasks that are important at work. But I want that that balance is important. Kristen, I reckon a lot of our listeners have worked in a place where they didn't feel listened to or they had an oppressive boss or they felt that their every moment at work was being controlled. The point that these scientists are making is that, yes, some of this stuff might sound trivial, but that's emblematic of a big problem, especially when science relies on everybody being able to question everything all the way up to the top. And in this lab, they say that just wasn't the case. Claire Harvey is the Australian's editorial director. You can listen to the Shandy's Legacy podcast series now. Just search for Shandy's Story, that's S-H-A-N-D-E-E, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow our rolling coverage of the inquiry at theaustralian.com.au. I'm Sarah Lamarquin, Editor-in-Chief of Stella and host of our podcast called Something to Talk About. Every weekend we publish a new episode where you'll hear compelling personalities, strong opinions and thought-provoking conversations. I wanted to be able to do it in my time when I was ready and speak my truth when I was ready. The topic of when do I become a mum, that is in my mind 24-7. Search for Something to Talk About wherever you listen to your podcasts.